Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The president and the first lady, I think, are very uh, delighted that this report ought to make clear to everybody uh, that what they have said about Whitewater is the truth. It's February 29th, 1996. That's White House Press Secretary Mike McCurry. He's giving the daily briefing in the midst of the Whitewater scandal, a controversy that embroiled the Clinton administration during its first term. But this daily briefing was different than most, because one of the White House lawyers was being called to the podium to take questions. I've got Mark Fabiani, who is the special associate counsel of the president, is here. He has been our spokesman on matters related to Whitewater. Mark, why don't you uh, come on up in case there's any other, any other questions on this? Mark Fabiani was part of the team of lawyers that ultimately defused the attacks on the Clinton White House from the Senate Whitewater Committee. Neither President Bill Clinton nor then First Lady Hillary Clinton ever faced charges from the affair. But again, you don't have to listen to us about this. Take the report and read it. It calls the Whitewater conspiracy theories uh, implausible. It deals with the major allegations that have been made about destruction of records and on and on deals with every one of the major allegations and, and disposes of them in a way that supports what the President and First Lady have said all along. You'd be forgiven if the name Mark Fabiani doesn't ring a bell. White House lawyers don't typically rise to the level of stardom that other administration officials do. But chances are, if you're from San Diego, the name does ring a bell. Because just a few short years after Fabiani was defending a U.S. president from the West Wing, he would take on a much different role. In 2002, he was hired by Dean Spanos as the special counsel to the San Diego Chargers. In this episode, we'll look at the showdown between the Chargers and the city of San Diego in the struggle for a new stadium a fight that lasted 15 years and somehow ended right where it began. We'll also talk about the powerhouse Chargers football team of the mid to late 2000s, a team that was populated by Hall of Famers, shattered NFL records, and yet failed to even make it to the Super Bowl. I'm your host, Rafi Cantor. This is Bolted. Chapter 4, Masters of Disaster. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. And the only place you should be betting on these sports is at betonline.ag. This episode is all about the mid-2000s, those dominant Charger teams that won four straight AFC West titles. And if you were to take a bet right now at who would win the AFC West in 2021, we've got the Kansas City Chiefs as heavy favorites to win their sixth straight, sixth straight division title at minus 350. But the Chargers led by Rookie of the Year Justin Herbert, are coming in at plus 450 in second place. I don't quite see them topping Mahomes, but there's a lot of value in that bet. BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. BetOnline has hundreds of props with real-time odds on almost anything you can imagine. And of course, the 24-hour online casino. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's betonline.ag, betonline, your online sportsbook experts. And now, back to the show. Before we begin this episode, we just want to note that Chargers special counsel, Mark Fabiani, declined our request for an interview. Last episode, we talked about the political and financial difficulties that make San Diego a uniquely tough place to build a stadium. In order to get their way, The Chargers were going to have to have somebody who could cut through the gridlock leading their efforts. And in 2002, Dean Spanos thought he had found his man. The quote is, the Bush team will be blistering us from now until November, says a senior guard advisor. You want someone who knows how to deal with intense incoming. And that's an old Vietnam term, incoming uh, mortars. And that's they're talking about the addition of Mark Fabiani, Clinton's former scandal spinner, who's joined the campaign. What do you think? Is it going to be a positive campaign or will there be intense incoming? I think there will be intense incoming. It's rare that someone with such a national political profile comes to San Diego. Mark Fabiani had been made deputy campaign manager of Al Gore's presidential campaign in 2000. Here's Washington Post reporter Howard Kurtz talking about Fabiani back in December of that year. Fabiani was the guy who stayed in Nashville, also talked to an awful lot of reporters every day, uh, was a little bit more part of the inner strategic circle, and Fabiani was a little bit more senior on the food chain, uh, so he had a certain stature when he went on, say, the Sunday morning shows or spoke on behalf of Al Gore. 
That's why it piqued the interest of a lot of journalists when Fabiani arrived in San Diego to represent the Chargers, with a single goal in mind. Radio host and NFL sideline reporter, Scott Kaplan. I can remember talking to Mark Fabiani on camera in 2003 saying, Mark, what are we going to do about a stadium? I mean, that's how far back it went with Fabiani. Fabiani wouldn't just be a lawyer working behind the scenes to pull the levers of power, lobbying quietly to build a new stadium for the Chargers. His role would be a lot more public. Before Professor Vladimir Kogan began teaching political science at The Ohio State University, he was a reporter for The Voice of San Diego in the mid-2000s. He was the face of the Chargers, right? He, you know, the, the family that owned the, char- the team, that were not the public face. He was the public guy that was out there negotiating, giving press conferences. Uh, you know, he was kind of their spokesman, but also their, you know, the, the uh, you know, in many ways, the, the face of the team on the business side, right? On, uh, and especially involved in the stadium negotiations. No matter who we talked to, Fabiani was universally recognized for his skill and ability. NBC7 sports anchor, Derek Togerson. Mark gets paid to do a job, and Mark does his job very, very well. Now, you want to talk about the ethics of whether or not it's decent to take the job that he was doing? That's a, that's, that's a debate for another day. Um, I do know that Mark is incredibly smart, and Mark is very good at what he does. Fabiani graduated from Harvard Law School, where he was an editor of the Harvard Law Review, and even served as lead research assistant for infamous attorney Alan Dershowitz. Fabiani's reputation as a masterful messaging spin doctor had even earned him a new nickname from Newsweek magazine, as AP sports writer Bernie Wilson recalls. Mark Fabiani, the hired gun, the master of disaster that Dean Spanos hired to negotiate this. The master of disaster. This led to a natural wariness about exactly why someone like Fabiani was being brought in to try and get a football stadium built. Because it's two very, very different things. You're doing a political campaign, it is just shock and awe and misdirect and attack. you got to work with people if you're trying to do a real estate deal. So it was always a strange choice, in my opinion, to bring in Mark Fabiani. And again, Kevin Acey. Uh, he did his job for Dean Spanos uh, and earned his money. And Mark is an extremely smart man. One of the smartest people that I've ever known. And I won't call a person a liar, but I will say this. In order to tell half-truths and to put out just propaganda after propaganda, you have to be super smart to keep it all straight and to devise this plan with so many moving parts and uh, dual purposes, which is to try to find a home in San Diego, but also try to leave. And Mark did that. In recent years, Fabiani's talent has even caught the attention of people like Lance Armstrong and Bill O'Reilly, who both hired Fabiani to manage their own PR crises. At the time Mark Fabiani began working for the Chargers to get a stadium built in 2002, He had his work cut out for him. The team was on the back end of one of its most miserable stretches in franchise history, having failed to post a winning season since the mid-90s. And politically, the Chargers were incredibly unpopular. The city was hemorrhaging money to pay them for the so-called ticket guarantee, giving the team $36 million to pay for unsold tickets. And now, the team wanted to build a new home, just six years after the city had coughed up $78 million to upgrade Jack Murphy Stadium. Adding that to the ticket guarantee, the city had gifted the Chargers $114 million in less than a decade. They were going to have to do something to move public sentiment. So, they started to rebuild. They had nothing. They had no organization. They had no fundamentals. They were terrible. They went 1-15. They were, they were an awful, awful team. That was John Gennaro. After the dreadful 1-15 season in 2000, Bobby Bethard, the general manager who had brought the Chargers to their only Super Bowl, retired. And in his place stepped John Butler, the former Bills GM who had taken Buffalo to four consecutive Super Bowls and lost all of them. To get back to winning, Butler felt that the Chargers needed to clean house. Kicker John Carney recalled his departure from the team as part of that change. John Butler had a plan to flip the team. He was going to create his own team, his hand-picked players and hand-picked coaches, which in fact he did. Uh, after two years, there were only two players remaining. 
John Butler really put together a contract. He knew I would never sign. Uh, it was just his method of politely dismissing a player by offering a contract you wouldn't sign. He knew you would go out and, and uh, look for uh, a better offer somewhere else, which I was forced to do. And um, then he would be clean and could wash his hands of that player and say, oh, well, the guy just didn't like our contract. And he also brought in a new head coach. Like Butler, he was an NFL veteran without a Super Bowl ring, who was hungry to capture the game's ultimate prize. Former Kansas City and Washington head coach, Marty Schottenheimer. Schottenheimer's arrival in San Diego coincided with linebacker Ben Lieber, who was drafted by the Chargers in 2002. I don't think I appreciated Marty much like we do with a lot in life until you leave. And I left and, and I'm like, man, those, those four years, um, you really got a sense right off the bat that he, he did care about you as a player. And I, and I, and I know that's um, sometimes kind of hard to, to understand when you're in it. Offensive tackle Roman Oban played alongside Ben Lieber and the Chargers beginning in 2004. Marty was, was an old-school coach in every sense of the word. Um, you want to pound guys in the fourth quarter. You want to be physical. He, I mean, he always talked about the mental toughness. And bottom line, like he cared about people. Like he cared about his, his players. Uh, he was very emotional. He cried during team meetings. You know, like he really was passionate. And so there's nothing, and that's something you just can't make up. Butler's first opportunity to make a mark on the team was the 2001 NFL Draft and he wasted no time. The Chargers had the number one pick that year, and all signs were pointing to them taking quarterback Michael Vick. Jay Posner was covering the Chargers for the Union Tribune. So 2001, I go back to New York, and on that Friday night, they had sort of a a media event um, for some of the top picks, and I remember both Vick and Tomlinson being at this event when word of the trade came. And I think the Chargers obviously had no way of knowing they were going to get LT. Um, I don't even know if that was who they were targeting. Reversing course from their Ryan Leaf selection just three years earlier, the Chargers traded down. With the uh, fifth pick in the first round of the 2001 draft, the San Diego Chargers select Ladanian Tomlinson, running back from TCU. And I think what also helped at the time was then in the second round, the Chargers got Drew Brees. Yeah. With their very next pick, the Chargers selected quarterback Drew Brees out of Purdue University. Drew is... No, I I don't even know if it's... I think that sometimes we we like to use the word competitive. You know, like, oh, this guy's also competitive. Drew has a compulsion. You know, he's, he's, he has a, an obsessive, compulsive mentality where he wants to prove everybody wrong. Shit, man, like, if we were running hills, the dude was just smoking everybody. And then we jogged back to the facility, and he's like the first guy in line, and he's actually running past us. In the span of a few hours, John Butler had picked two of the greatest statistical offensive stars of a generation. Within two years, they had drafted... Two Hall of Famers. They had they had signed an undrafted tight end yeah. to be a future Hall of Famer. He's talking about Antonio Gates, who happens to be the all-time NFL record holder for touchdown receptions by a tight end. Butler's scouting talent was also matched by his ruthlessness. He famously traded away Junior Seau, arguably the greatest Charger of all time, for a fifth-round draft pick. His personality could be equally abrasive, too. Once again... Scott Kaplan. John Butler was a bully. John Butler was a very big guy. He was a very overweight guy. And he was somewhat physically intimidating. Not that you thought he was going to beat you up. It's just he was just big and huffy and puffy. And I can remember saying things on the radio. And John Butler would call me at my house. You motherfucker. How fucking dare you say that shit? You're going to fucking go on the radio. I'm like, I'm like, I'm a young guy. I mean, I'm like in my early 30s. I'm scared out of my mind. At whatever cost. Butler was in the process of constructing one of the most talented offensive units that pro football had ever seen when he tragically passed away in 2003. He would never get to see what his rebuild would blossom into. Back in the stadium fight, 
New special counsel Mark Fabiani and the rest of the Chargers organization were being given the greatest gift they could hope for from the NFL in 2003. And it was a big deal. And it was a big deal for the city, not even necessarily financially, I think just from a from an ego reputation standpoint. Hey, the Super Bowl is coming to, to San Diego. San Diego happened to be set to host Super Bowl 37, the very season that Fabiani was brought in. It would be the third Super Bowl held in San Diego, and the second since the stadium had been expanded for the express purpose of hosting the big game. If we're talking about the Super Bowl, we gotta talk to Jim Steig. Uh, and as Michael Jackson once said to me, you're telling me that my, my halftime show will be seen in countries that I'll never do a concert in? And we said, yes, and he said, I'm in. Jim Steig began working for the NFL in 1979 climbing the ranks to senior vice president of special events. He's the man that many credit for turning the Super Bowl into America's greatest sporting spectacle. How do you make a three-hour game into more than just the three-hour game? And then how do you make the day into more than just a day? And then how do you make the weekend more than what it is? Now it's turned into a week to 10 days. And how do you do that? It starts as simple as half times and anthems. The NFL has long touted that hosting a Super Bowl can bring hundreds of millions of dollars to local economies. It doesn't take a rocket science rocket scientist to figure out that, you know, if you're spending three to four thousand dollars a person and you've got one hundred and twenty five thousand people in there, you can kind of figure out real quick how much that is. The NFL actually hires accounting firms to perform analyses on the economic impacts that Super Bowls bring to local markets. The hope is that the NFL can somehow prove that hosting a Super Bowl is good for local economies. In the two Super Bowls that San Diego held after expanding its stadium, those numbers were $295 million in 1998 and $375 million in 2003. But a closer look at the numbers reveals that the NFL may be inflating the Super Bowl's benefits, and with a specific purpose in mind. Uh, But even guys like me who are critics wouldn't uh, de- deny the fact that the Super Bowl is a big fun party and uh, that uh, we do have evidence that mega events do make people happy. We just don't have a lot of evidence that it makes us rich. That's Professor Victor Matheson. He's a sports economist at the College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts, and he's devoted his career to looking at the dollar signs behind America's major sports leagues. The Super Bowl is obviously a huge economic generator for the NFL. And uh, the NFL wants to have cities think that it's a big economic generator for them as well. And so what the NFL does is they will put out an economic impact report uh, that will show that the, that the economic impact of a Super Bowl is in the vicinity of four or five or six hundred million dollars. And then they turn right around and they say, well, uh, we can't put a Super Bowl at your existing stadium, but you know, if you build a new one or you put a bunch of upgrades into your old one, then you could host that. And if you put $500 million of public money into a new stadium uh, and we get you the Super Bowl, well, the $500 million you gain from hosting the Super Bowl pays for those subsidies that you've done. So in effect, it's like getting a uh, stadium for free. Of course, that's only uh, that, that math only works if the Super Bowl is really worth that much money to uh, host it. The NFL uses these economic impact reports with massive dollar signs attached to motivate cities to build new stadiums for their NFL teams, with the Super Bowl as a dangling carrot if the cities follow through. But what about the money that isn't being spent? Before Super Bowl 52 in 2018, the NFL's bid book was leaked to the media, which details everything a city needs to provide to the NFL in order to host the big game. The phrase, at no cost to the NFL, appeared 127 times in that document. So they get the convention center, free. They get the stadium, free. All the stuff that's sold at the stadium, no taxes. The rooms that the NFL itself buys, they don't pay taxes on. They are provided, a, they are provided multiple team and league hotels. All of that is free. They're provided bus transportation for everyone all over the place. All of that's free. They're provided a media center free. You add up all those uh, little goodies there. The Super Bowl probably uh, costs roughly $50 million in total uh, lost revenue. Uh, You know, if you had to buy this at market prices. 
Even the tickets the NFL sells to the game itself, which nowadays bring in about $100 million, are tax-free. That's pure windfall for the NFL. All while cities pay for security, transportation, the infrastructure to make the game happen. The city of Glendale, Arizona, claims that they actually lost a million dollars hosting Super Bowl 49 in 2014. This all paints a pretty murky picture into how much money the Super Bowl is actually generating. But what about the intangibles? The prestige that a Super Bowl brings to a city? Once again, Jim Steig. Then you add up the television exposure. You're, you're the dominant feature probably in the world uh, for the last two days. But beforehand, you know, all those TV remotes that are taking place and, you know, with the ESPNs of the world and all those guys that are broadcasting from sets there. So it's exposure is worldwide. I think the game gets broadcast in over 180 countries live. That's where hosting the Super Bowl becomes particularly important to a city like San Diego. Matheson told us about a certain mindset that gets exploited in these stadium battles. There is definitely the case that there is this uh, this inferiority complex that particularly mid-size uh, you know markets have, uh, especially if they're in the shadow of of other much larger cities. Does that sound familiar? I I, I think people here always feel like. I think there's people here who have a, a somewhat of an inferiority complex about the city. I think some of it comes from being in the shadow so close to L.A., which is such a big city. And it's like, hey, we're a big city, too. We'll get the Super Bowl here. So what better way to motivate a city concerned with its self-image than to take the very thing that validated its stature away? The day before Super Bowl 37 was set to kick off, NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabue announced that this would be the last big game held in San Diego. Unless, of course, they voted to build a new stadium. You know, Alex Spanos kind of letting out to one reporter right around, I think, 1999, that he wanted a new stadium. And that kind of lit the fuse for it. And, and obviously, Tagliabue works for the owners. And if the owner wants to do something, uh, then you're going to follow through with what the owner wants to do. Again. We're just seven years removed from the city spending $78 million to upgrade the stadium specifically to host Super Bowls. I, I think that was kind of like a punch to the gut, like, wait a minute, what do you mean not coming back? And it was just seen as sort of like NFL arrogance a little bit that, you know, we're going to extort a stadium for the Chargers because of the Super Bowl. But the threat of losing one big game every five years or so would not be enough to compel San Diegans to spend on a new stadium. So what else could the Chargers do? For the first time, they began to threaten to move to Los Angeles. Former Chargers linebacker Ben Lieber described his viewpoint of the situation as a rookie in 2002. The the older guys sort of joked with me about even like whether I buy a house or rent a house. And... Um, you know, even at the time, they were saying, well, be careful about buying a house. You're probably going to up and move someplace. And I'm like, well, why? And they're like, oh, this, this team's been trying to build a new stadium or move for, for years. And so um, that was sort of communicated to me really early on that if, if the Chargers don't get a new stadium, that, that they're going to up and relocate. This was not a new tactic. Threatening to move to Los Angeles had been in vogue amongst NFL teams ever since the NFL left the city in 1995. Professor Matheson explains why. You know, L.A. was this weird story, right? Uh, it's the nation's second largest media market, and for 20 years, it was without an NFL team. But it turned out it worked super well for the, uh, for the NFL because the L.A. market was a credible threat for just about any team in the league to move. And team after team after team after team threatened to move to uh, L.A., uh, in order to try to extract, uh, you know, pretty hefty stadium subsidies out of their local government. Uh, the Vikings threatened to move. Uh, let me see. Indianapolis Colts threatened to move. Jacksonville threatened to move. Uh, uh, New Orleans threatened to move. Obviously, the Rams, the Chargers all tried to extort their local cities out of big uh, tax breaks uh, with a threat to move. According to ESPN's Thomas Newman, more than half of the NFL's franchises have directly or indirectly threatened to move to Los Angeles since 1995. For the Chargers, threats turned into actions in the summers of 2003 and 2004, because in those years, 
the Chargers decided to hold training camp in the L.A. suburb of Carson. I've never been to, never participated in a more pressing training camp uh, in my 10 years than, uh, than those two than those two in Carson. Um, you know, you, sometimes you keep the energy of the crowd and the fans to, to get you through a practice, and I think we might have three kids with backpacks on walking class to class and stop on the fence line and watch practice, but that's about it. We knew that the the, the Carson move was was a business move. It was a leverage play. Um, they're testing the market in LA to see if there's any interest. I'll tell you uh, that there was absolutely zero interest for practice. Whether the Carson ploy was a success is debatable, but momentum was finally building towards a new stadium in San Diego. The Chargers had called in backup. I always said that there were two things I wanted to achieve in my career, both of which I never did. It was one to get a ring, and the other one was to turn around and build a stadium. Jim Steig left the NFL in 2004, when he was lured to San Diego by Dean Spanos and the Chargers with the opportunity to be their chief operating officer. In my conversations with Dean about it, it seemed like it was on the cusp of getting the stadium done. Um, the proposal that was out there seemed so logical and so rational um, to make the thing happen that I couldn't see it not getting done. For a better understanding of what the Chargers were proposing, here's the voice of San Diego's Scott Lewis. Let us take the land, let us develop the land, and in exchange, we'll build a stadium. And um, so this is all city land, so let us have that. Let us build condos and we'll go forward. The city formed a task force. They analyzed that. They said, that's pretty good. We'll do that. Uh, there was a lot of momentum toward that. And once again, Professor Vladimir Kogan. Uh, and so I think for a long time, people like Mark Fabiani that worked for the Chargers were telling the city, it's going to be totally privately funded. It won't cost you anything. Sounds like a solid plan, right? It's important to remember that there was a much simpler way that the Chargers could convince San Diego to build a new stadium instead of threatening to move. They could just win. I think the, the best example I can think of that is uh, Mile High Stadium in, uh, in Denver, Colorado. Uh, old, venerable stadium, multi-use stadium, you know, baseball and football that had been around forever. Uh, Denver Broncos finally win their first Super Bowl in 97 and 98 after... You know, kind of some horrific losses in the Super Bowl for years. And lo and behold, literally within a year of winning that first Super Bowl, a voters passed a referendum to, uh, to build the new stadium. This was already proven true in San Diego. After the Chargers went to the Super Bowl in 1995, they got their controversial stadium upgrade. Just weeks after the Padres went to the World Series in 1998, Voters overwhelmingly approved a ballot measure to give them a new stadium, which eventually became Petco Park. Winning was just as important as any political ad or endorsement. And beginning in 2004, the Chargers were actually getting pretty good. But only after a few, well, let's call them extenuating circumstances. After general manager John Butler's untimely death, his assistant GM A.J. Smith would be coming in to take his place. But A.J. Smith and head coach Marty Schottenheimer did not get along. Once again, Scott Kaplan. The, the reason that there was conflict between Marty Schottenheimer and A.J. Smith is very, very simple. A.J. Smith has a massive ego. A.J. Smith always thought that he had to be the smartest guy in the room. Was such an egomaniac about who he drafted and and how they performed and and making sure everybody knew who was really responsible for this. In 2004, AJ Smith wanted to replace Drew Brees. It's hard to imagine now, but Brees struggled in his first few years with the Chargers, splitting time with veteran Doug Flutie. Marty Schottenheimer wanted to stick with Brees, but Smith had the final say. And in 2004, Smith entered the NFL draft with the number one pick, wanting to draft an elite quarterback. There was only one on everyone's mind, Eli Manning. Remember, the Chargers had missed their chance to draft Eli's brother Peyton in 1998, instead taking Ryan Leaf with their next pick. It seemed like destiny. Problem was, Eli Manning did not want to play for the Chargers. Once again, linebacker Ben Lieber. You know, even even back in those days when we didn't have Twitter and social media and, and the access to uh, to information freely, 
uh, it was it was pretty much relayed to to us and to me that yeah it didn't happen <laughs> you know um, that if he he was going to get drafted and and he was not up there so you know we were all just you know of course you're you're butthurt by it because you're like well who who do you think you are you know you're a little college punk you know you have no idea and, you know why do you look at our franchise um, as this sort of you know, black mark and and a place that you're not going to thrive um, so you know we took offense to it John Gennaro. Uh, the Manning family saw that the Chargers were continually failing players. They failed, as I said, Ryan Leaf. Uh, they failed Drew Brees in in a way, just essentially by drafting a quarterback in the first round. They were failing Drew Brees. Drew Brees at that point had played two seasons, one very good and one not very good, behind one of the worst offensive lines the league has ever seen. The Mannings knew that it was still kind of a laughing stock of a team. That even when their record was good, they were still kind of a laughing stock behind the scenes. The Mannings had even reached out to the family of a previous Chargers quarterback, the one who the Chargers selected immediately after Peyton Manning, Ryan Leaf. You know, I think he reached out to my father uh, because, you know, he wanted to know how they treated his son. And so um, parents are different, right? Parents need Parents want to protect you. So all I can imagine is my father told, you know, Mr. Manning that, you know, it was not a good experience. I, if I was sending my son to a a place to work, uh, where he'd be cared for and taken care of and, and, and the best possible thing, you know, I'm sure he advised him against it as I'm sure a lot of people did, you know, it's systematically, it hasn't been the the best organization necessarily. And yet. Nevertheless, when the clock ticked down on draft day in April 2004, with the uh, first choice in the 2004 NFL draft, the San Diego Chargers select Eli Manning, quarterback, Mississippi. Just listen to ESPN's Chris Berman's reaction. Well, well, sometimes all it takes is one word. The image of Eli Manning half-smiling on stage at the draft while holding a Chargers jersey endures as one of the most memorable in team history. I, I would say the national perspective was that it was sort of a black mark on the Charger organization. Because, you know, the Mannings are considered sort of, this is a bad word, but sort of football royalty. Manning was dealt to the New York Giants for a monster haul that included quarterback Philip Rivers and several draft picks that would be used to round out the Chargers. Roman Oban was traded to the Chargers for one of those draft picks. Uh, it's funny, my wife said when we were in San Diego that Subo, which was like, I could, I could definitely see myself living here. This place is beautiful. I was like, oh, yeah, all right, whatever, you know, it's <laughs> fine. You know, we live in Florida now. I mean, what's better than that, you know? <laughs> We, uh, when we actually, uh, when it happened, I called her, I said, look, we are, I got traded to San Diego and I have a flight this afternoon. She's like, what? But this wouldn't be a Chargers story without a contract dispute. Philip Rivers would not report to training camp in 2004, giving Drew Brees the starting job. Brees had his first season as the Hall of Fame quarterback we know him to be today. One thing I loved about Drew was, like, he really paid attention to everything. Like, it's funny, like, you could be in a game and say, listen, man, like, like I need you to step up in the pocket and get rid of that thing. These guys, these guys are blitzing on the road. I can't hear. I mean, he, he, all right, I'm going to get rid of the ball. Like, he was a young player trying to get better. He listened and cared, and, and, and that work ethic was, was developed. Breeze chucked well over 3,000 yards with 27 touchdown passes and only seven interceptions. LaDainian Tomlinson averaged over 100 yards from scrimmage per game. And on defense, longtime veteran coach Wade Phillips had been brought in, and he gave his platoon a new look. That was the year that we switched to a 3-4. Uh, that was Wade Phillips. Um, you know, Wade had had a had such a, an ease about him, and he really made defense feel fun. It was enough to boost the 2004 Chargers to a 12-4 record. They won nine of their final ten games of the season. In their first playoff berth in nearly a decade, they even got to host the New York Jets. Momentum was all on their side. So it was, it was my first time ever kind of riding that high, going into the game with that much confidence. The Chargers lost in overtime. 
the offense that had averaged 32 and a half points a game at home all season scored just 17 points. On an unusually rainy night in San Diego, the Chargers had a chance to win by kicking a 40-yard field goal. The Chargers kicker, Nate Kading, was a rookie drafted with one of the picks acquired in the Eli Manning trade. Here's your ball game. And he's going to miss it wide to the right. Wow. Um, obviously, how it ended was, you know, um, that was uh, what Nate Kading's miss, um, a rookie kicker. Um, obviously felt bad for him. And, um, you know, we, you really do, you really do believe that, all right, we can't blame it on this guy. Then there's a lot of things that we did individually to to mess this game up. Uh, obviously just huge disappointment. Roman Oban started that game at left tackle. When you put it on the kicker or, or, or a ref or to make a call or some call gets blown or whatever, like that just means you're not doing the job offensively. You know, it was a, it was a rainy, muddy game. Everyone's footing was off. We punted the ball back and forth a couple of times and just, yeah, and I, was, I, I remember that disappointment after that. The following season of 2005 ended without a playoff berth. In fact, it was clear entering the final game of the season that it would be impossible for them to make it to the postseason, which is why it was peculiar that Drew Brees and not Phillip Rivers was playing against Denver. John Gennaro. The, the way in which Drew Brees ended up in New Orleans was a result of the organization failing him. Um, he ripped his shoulder in half in a way that no one has ever ripped their shoulder in half before or since. That's how severe his shoulder injury was. The only reason he was on the field to have his shoulder ripped in half in a completely and totally meaningless game, because it was week 17 and the Chargers were not going to the playoffs no matter what happened, was because Marty Schottenheimer absolutely refused to put Philip Rivers in the game because he didn't agree with the fact that Rivers was drafted. The rift between Marty Schottenheimer and A.J. Smith was literally hurting the team. Breeze's injury aligned with his free agency, and the Chargers were unwilling to sign an injured quarterback for Breeze's price. Breeze would leave for the Saints, and in less than four years, he would do something that the Chargers never have, win a Super Bowl. The Chargers may have stumbled on the field, but Mark Fabiani the political operative who had been brought in to get a stadium deal done, looked like he was well on his way to accomplishing that very goal in a few short years. But the 2004 season also coincided with the first election in San Diego since the pension crisis rocked the city. New candidates who promised to clean up City Hall stormed into office, and one of them set his sights right on the new stadium deal. And and led by you know the the fabulous uh, I call him Fabiani or Fibiani. You guys call him Fabiani. I call him Fibiani. Led by Fibiani. That voice belongs to former San Diego City Attorney Mike Aguirre. We heard from Aguirre a lot last episode, talking about the pension crisis that swept him into office. I was really eager to get to talk to him, but as you'll hear, he was pretty eager to talk to me too. Well, you know, uh, ever since I was little, I've had this uh, tremendous uh, regard for the story of America. For more on Aguirre, here's Scott Lewis. The city attorney, so not all cities have elected city attorneys. Um, San Diego has an elected city attorney. And for a long time, that was just a kind of no you know, a, a minor figure in local politics, you know, uh, not a very significant position. Mike Aguirre, though, brilliant, weird man. He looked at the old, you know, he ran for everything, ran for city council, ran for all these things, failed and failed and failed. And he looks at the old um, documents that were put together in the 1930s when they created the elected city attorney. And he said, like, look, this shows that they wanted people to... um elect the city attorney because he wanted them to be um, accountable to the people. They didn't want a city attorney who was the attorney for the city council and the the mayor. They wanted somebody who was representing them. And so he kind of took that interpretation to the extreme and said, like, I'll be your fighter in this. Aguirre ran as an outsider who would reform City Hall and won his election by just 3,300 votes, less than a percentage point. And with him, Aguirre brought a unique personality to politics in San Diego. 
I, I read all the time. I had someone tell me the other day that's in the sports media, oh, you know, I'm good friends of Alex Spanos. No, you're not. Right now I'm listening to the most amazing diary. Guys, younger guys that would wear these really tall hats. By a lady by the name of Mary Chestnut. It's really funny. Because she kept a diary day by day by day during the Civil the War. establishment of San Diego. They called them the Hi-Hat Charlie Boys. It's a personality that rubbed many San Diegans a certain way. He realized right away that he was extremely powerful. But he was also um, very paranoid, uh, hyper, um, he had this hyper energetic work uh, style that made him very, uh, very distracted and very confusing to follow. He, he built in his mind uh, a number of different uh, enemies. He started accusing people pretty constantly of being corrupt. Former assistant manager of Jack Murphy Stadium, Stephen Shushan. What was Mikey Geary's role in that? Uh, probably a thorn in everyone, you know, I think he opposed. And of course, former Chargers COO, Jim Steig. And I certainly didn't understand that a Gary coming in, I always challenge everybody this, can you name your city attorney in any other cities? And everybody said, what? I don't know, we have a city attorney. I said, well, you go to San Diego, you know, this guy was a dominant force. Um, was kind of the fly in the ointment of everything, so that hurt a lot. So, But Aguirre is well aware of his place in the hearts and minds of San Diegans. And so when I got in there, I managed to bring people together to unify people that hated each other, but they hated me more than they hated each other. And so I always talked to my, about myself as a great unifier. I unified everybody against me. In Mark Fabiani... Mike Aguirre knew he had a worthy opponent. Mark Fabiani is like, you know, he's uh, the master of disaster, as they say. No, he's extremely talented. And the thing that he was most talented about was he was talented in keeping the charges, paying him thousands and thousands of dollars to make their case. Back when he was a private citizen, Aguirre had sued to invalidate the agreement between the city of San Diego and the Chargers that outlined the stadium upgrade and ticket guarantee. You know, he had gotten elected in part based on, um, you know, this long-standing impression that people had that the Chargers had ripped off the city. The notion of a new stadium perplexed Aguirre. Well, remember, they did get a new stadium. They got a new stadium in 1996. They got the one that they wanted, and they said that they weren't going to ask for another stadium after they got that. They went back on their word. Aguirre is referencing the $78 million stadium expansion from 1996. You know, the one he sued over. The city was broke. Uh, and it wasn't just that they were asking for the land for free. It was the city would be on the hook for the bonds that they were going to sell. And that, there's just no, well, first of all, the city didn't have the credit rating. They couldn't even sell bonds because we lost our credit rating. That's number one. And so Aguirre and Fabiani began to butt heads in the press. And the war of words eventually took Mike Aguirre, out of all places, onto Al Franken's radio show in 2005. So I got got on this show, and Al and I were having this wonderful conversation, and Al said, hey, you know, you're kind of funny. And I said, well, you know, thanks. And so, uh, so we had this conversation, and I kept saying to myself, look, Alex Spanos, you are a conservative Republican. Conservative Republicans don't believe in uh, government subsidies. You know, you don't believe in that. That's not your story. But you're getting subsidized like crazy right now. You've got the ticket guarantee. That is corporate socialism. But Aguirre used slightly different phrasing during that interview. He called Alex Spanos a, quote, corporate welfare queen, end quote. And so I just added a little, I shouldn't have called him a queen, because that's obviously that's a, you know, in the context of today. That's a, a misnomer, but he got so mad at that. He did not like being called a welfare queen, but yeah. he was a welfare recipient. Let's put it that way. Fabiani responded with a 26-page letter to Aguirre, airing grievances and calling Aguirre, quote, the Terrell Owens of San Diego, end quote, a reference to the loudmouth all-pro wide receiver who at the time was playing for the Philadelphia Eagles. Once again, Scott Kaplan. Mike Aguirre ultimately represented what the majority of people felt. But the fact is, Mike Aguirre was a self-promoting blowhard 
who really just wanted to see his name written in the newspaper. He wanted to be called for radio interviews. Um, he actually wasn't a bad guy. He kind of played along, but it was a performance for him. He was a guy who thought that, you know, he's the boss. He should run town. Things should be done this way. Things should never be given for free to billionaires. And I guess ultimately, most people did agree with him. By January of 2006, the Chargers made an announcement that they would not be pursuing a ballot measure for their plan. Also in this announcement was a line from Mark Fabiani. Quote, If the Chargers are eventually forced to leave San Diego, there can be no doubt that Mike Aguirre will be to blame. End quote. But Scott Lewis and Mike Aguirre contend there was another reason. You know, this is one of the lesser told parts of this story. The Chargers needed some company to come in and build all the condos for them. They would get the money, the builder would get some money, and the what's left over, they'd build a stadium. Well, in about 2006, the housing market started to show some signs that there was some problems, right? Um, 2005, 2006 was when it started to become clear that there were more homes than there was demand for. And we started to see the, the first steps of what became this incredible housing market collapse, right? Well, you know, I, I was interested in the plan. Uh, and what I did is I had someone come in that was a real estate developer and uh, take a look at the plan. And the plan was built on a false premise. That whole plan was based on, based on the premise that they could sell condos and make up for the difference. And the condo market absolutely fell through the floor. If we would have done that, that would have bankrupted the city. No doubt about it. That would have been, maybe even the Chargers. That would have been a disaster. But if you ask members of the Chargers, like former COO Jim Steig, Aguirre was the very reason that the Chargers could not secure a developer. I mean, the line we got back from every one of them, uh, we don't mind going to do this and getting sued because we get sued all the time. But if the guy suing you is basically the city suing you, you know, that's, I don't know how that's ever going to turn out. If he's got the, quote, power of the city behind suing you on your plan, then that, that's what scared them all off. The stadium deal was dead. Jim Steig was floored. I did not understand the underlying uh, hatred and fear by the politicians uh, left over from the ticket guarantee. And we, I think we probably could have, in 06, gotten the stadium vote through if it hadn't been that Aguirre was sitting there as the city attorney. Aguirre had made a goal line stand against the Chargers. There would be no land giveaway in San Diego under his watch. But thanks in large part to a messaging strategy by Mark Fabiani and the Chargers, the tide of public opinion had turned against him. The Chargers, they don't win on the field that much, but they definitely win when it comes to public relations. And so that's what happened. I think, I think that uh, when the Chargers needed hand-to-hand -hand combat in, in media relations, yeah, they were smart to go to him because he did an effective job. He certainly neutralized me. Aguirre had won the battle but lost the war. His dealings with the Chargers, as well as his loud battles at City Hall over the pension scandal, had earned him the ire of many San Diegans. Aguirre fought for re-election in 2008, but lost to challenger Jan Goldsmith by 19 points. He was brilliant in his ability to see and make observations about the law and about how things worked. But he was also really um, paralyzed by this extreme paranoia and his inability to focus. In December of 2008, the San Diego Union-Tribune released an end-of-year list titled, quote, 23 people who let us down, end quote. Sitting alone at number one was Mike Aguirre. I had one final question for Jim Steig when he was recalling this portion of the story. So, if I may ask you to pause it, like, if Mike Aguirre is not city attorney, do you think there's a new stadium? Yes. Yes, I do. But looking back on it, Aguirre doesn't mind one bit. It was glorious, though, I'll tell you that. It was four wonderful years of doing what I thought was the right thing to do every single day without regard to, you know, whether someone liked it or not. And uh, I learned a lot, and it was a wonderful experience. And I love that. I love the city of San Diego. I love the, the government of the city of San Diego. You know, it, it fulfilled a lifetime dream. 
Support for Bolted is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in below-the-waist men's grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you with the best tools for your grooming experience. Now, we've talked about Manscaped's offensive star, the Lawnmower 3.0 Precision Trimmer, but my favorite Manscaped product is actually their defensive legend, the Manscaped Performance Boxer Briefs. The microfiber blend is designed to keep high-friction areas cool, and the no-roll waistband provides maximum support below the waist. This is a San Diego-based company with a global reach. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BOLTED at manscaped.com. That's promo code B-O-L-T-E-D at manscaped.com. Want to give a brief moment to talk about our newest sponsor, eBay. Whether rare dead stock or the latest release, find the exact shoe you're looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to go to cop that pair you've been eyeing. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee that includes a digital stamp of authenticity, and it also protects sellers with a verified return process. And for sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees for sneakers over $100, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. And now, back to the show. One would think that this would be the end of the story. The Chargers had pulled out of their plan to develop a new stadium, and the city was too broke to do anything about it. What are we still doing here? Well, inconveniently for everyone, the San Diego Chargers were about to play their most remarkable season yet. When you're winning, um, it's 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 a it's like the Vince Lombardi, like winning is a disease. Like you actually continue to win and you continue to have confidence, and then other people grow confidence. And then we were winning in so many different ways. That was former Chargers offensive tackle Roman Oban. In 2006, after a grueling half-decade-long rebuild, rising from the ashes of the Ryan Leaf era, the ticket guarantee, and a wildcard stumble in 2004, the vision that John Butler had for his football team in the SoCal sunshine was being realized. With Breeze moving on to the Saints, Philip Rivers was coronated as the Chargers quarterback of the future. Uh, with, with Phil, it was just his competitiveness. Like he's jaw jabbing with DBs and, and, and the, during TV timeouts or, or talking crap to the other guys. I was like, this guy's a quarterback. Like, like you're supposed to, you know, have an Argyle sweater and, and go, you know, golf on your day off. And again, Ben Lieber. Philip is a little bit more like he keeps things on the field. You know, on the field, he is. He just he has fun. He's laughing more. He's looking more. Um, he's he's talking crap. Um, and as you guys all know, it's it's like you know, it's fourth grade trash talking. It's not you know, it's not. <laughs> nothing no swear words and nothing like that he, he just has this sort of infectious magnetic personality that you just kind of want to be around and and he was fun man and you, you play against him and you know he's the guy that's gonna you know walk up to the line and you know smile at you and be like hey ben all right and then they'll like go and you know and then go on to the play with rivers finally in the starting quarterback role the 2006 chargers had assumed their final form and they put together a season for the record books 14 wins and two losses. Only 31 individual team seasons have ended with 14 or more wins in NFL history. It's a remarkable feat that the Chargers accomplished in a very specific way. Hi, this is LaDainian Tomlinson. We're going to run the football till your nose bleeds and your eyes water. And we're going to do it until you stop us. And most times they didn't stop it. And if they did stop him, that's okay because we're throwing to Antonio Gates and we know you can't stop him either. The offense led the league in points scored, touchdowns, red zone percentage, and turnovers allowed, largely on the back of LaDainian Tomlinson. The draft pick that had started the entire process won NFL MVP while shattering the record for touchdowns in a single season with 31, a record that still stands to this day. LT's former lineman, Roman Oban. You know, you, you get taught as a lineman, you gotta like knock a guy off the ball, and pancake guys and double teams and create these holes. Like with, with LT, like he was so good that you had to get a hat on a hat and, and eliminate penetration and he was gone. 
like he could find a hole, he could explode. He could, he was like a human joystick and, um, in every sense of the word. It was the first time since the Air Coriel era that the Chargers were entering the playoffs as the number one seed. These were not the Cinderella underdog Chargers that went to the Super Bowl in the 1994 season. These were the bullies on the playground. In San Diego, they felt untouchable. And apparently, the Chargers organization felt that way too. AP sports writer, Bernie Wilson. They had also met with the police department to start planning a Super Bowl parade, you know, before they'd even played the division round game. And they said, well, we did that because just to cover our bases, you know, uh, these things take work. And it's like, don't, don't give me that. You're thinking about hosting the AFC championship game and winning the Super Bowl, so you're already planning a parade. And with the new stadium's political chances dead in the water, Everyone on the team knew that there was much more at stake with this season than a trophy. Scott Kaplan. I'm in a CBS television production meeting at the Charger facility in Alex Spanos's conference room, and Marty Schottenheimer is sitting at the end of the table and talked about the desire to win a Super Bowl, which he had, of course, never done and never did as a head coach. But it wasn't about him. It was about keeping the Chargers in San Diego. And I swear to you guys, he starts crying, crying in front of all of us, how much he wants to win, win a Super Bowl. To I swear to you, I'm getting goosebumps. To keep the Chargers in San Diego. He knew, he said, if we can win a Super Bowl, we'll get a new stadium and the Chargers will stay here. This was before the divisional round of the playoffs, when the team coming to town was Tom Brady's New England Patriots. It's hard to believe that by 2006, the Patriots had already become a dynasty, winning three championships in four years. Shutting down Tom Brady was paramount if the Chargers wanted to have any success in this game. And they did that. With just six and a half minutes remaining in the contest, Brady had gone 21 of 41 with only one touchdown and two interceptions. The Pats were losing 21 to 13, and were forced to go for it on 4th and 5 at midfield to try and keep the game alive. Chargers defensive back Marlon McCree perfectly played Tom Brady's pass. Brady throws in, he's intercepted for the third time, and the ball comes out. Troy Brown reached in there and knocked the ball loose. Can you believe it? New England recovers. McCree coughed up the football during the return. The player who recovered it was Rache Caldwell. Up until that season, Caldwell had played his entire career in a Chargers uniform. But that day, he was playing for the Patriots. Somehow, impossibly, the Chargers had given Tom Brady a first down on a fourth down pass that was intercepted. Roman Oban was on the sideline watching his defense try to stop Tom Brady. And to this day, you can hear his frustration. If, if, if Marlon McCree catches that fumble, I mean, catch the interception just takes a knee. Like, it just takes a knee. Like, we put Michael Turner in the game and we run him out the gym and we, and we, we host the Colts the next week, who we owned um, in our stadium, and then we're playing the Bears in the Super Bowl. Like, like that's the, you know, like, that was, uh, that, was, that was a tough one to swallow, man. Like, and I'm not mad at Marlon McCree at all. I, you know, I pushed him the best of it. But, like, I think that was, uh, that was like, selfish DB 101. Like, you're up, the game's over, interception wants to take it to the house, and then here come, and the ball's not secure. Like, secure the football is what you learned that in Pop Warner. Secure the ball, no matter what, secure the football. It's one of those plays that defies football gravity, where you can feel the arc of history being bent in a different direction. I blacked out. No, like, seriously, I, I, have, I have friends that, you know, love to tell the story. Of, like, here's where I was when, you know, I was screaming at Marlon McCree, like, just get down. And I threw a remote through my TV. I blacked out. I don't remember it. I don't remember it at all. I remember I was, uh, I was producing a special football night in San Diego show. They were at the stadium, ready. And we're going through scripts, and I'm sending them stuff, and we're in their ear. And then the pit cabins, I'm like, yeah, this is it. We're good. And Marlon McCree fumbles, and I went, oh, no. <laughs> Oh, this is not going to, I said, Laz, I'm going to start sending you new scripts, man. He's like, what? what this is not, this is not going to end. And it was like a, a legitimate pit in your stomach. It was so disheartening. Cause I just remember sitting there like, okay, we're going to start the show. I don't even know what to say. I said, 
got in Laz's earpiece. I said, "Hey, man, just just be honest, dude. Just go. I got. I got. I, we're just going to show that fumble like twenty five thousand times. That's that's the game." Others believe it was but a blip in a series of mistakes that cost the Chargers the game, like Jay Posner. The Chargers were up by eight points. Tom Brady is on the other team. That game was not over with one interception. If he can get the ball out to the 40, 50-yard line and the Chargers can you know, get one or two first downs and, and kick a field goal, the game's over. I mean, they needed more. They needed to think about scoring points in that game. Anyone who says Marlon McCree should have gone to the ground in that situation is just flat out wrong. He he made a to me he made a physical error, not a mental error. There were a lot of guys in that game who made mental errors. I don't I don't put McCree in that um, in that category. You know, look, they had this great offense, this great running back, couldn't get a first down. You know, so now you're you know now it's you have to blame that as well. And then when that happened, you're like, oh well, now they're going to lose. I think that's when you probably thought. This is happening again. Regardless of what the true cause was, Posner gets at the heart of what this loss meant. This was happening again. From Air Coriel and the Super Bolts of 1994 to now. From front office bats to Ryan Leaf. Much like their lawyer Mark Fabiani, the Chargers had constantly found themselves in moments of crises. But unlike Fabiani, the Chargers never mastered disaster. Yet another championship-caliber team with Hall of Fame talent chokes in the playoffs. Worst loss ever. It's the absolute worst loss um, that I've ever been a part of in, in, in any phase of my life. But what was more devastating than the on-field cost of that play was what would happen off the field. The shaky alliance between head coach Marty Schottenheimer and general manager A.J. Smith disintegrated. It's like a game of Survivor. You're backstabbing everybody who you want gone. And AJ wanted wanted Marty gone. And, you know, the, Marty had come off this 14-2 and two season. He wanted to hire his brother, Kurt, to become special teams coordinator. By the way, completely legitimate hire. Kurt had a very established track record of success as, a, as an assistant coach in the NFL. And Marty wanted more people around him that were on his side, if you will. And they would not have it. No way, no how. And the Spanos has had the audacity to talk about nepotism in the NFL when, I mean, that's what they're all about. But um, that's how, if if the if the Spanoses would have chosen Schottenheimer over A.J. Smith, we might be talking about the Chargers here in town. It was deja vu all over again. With his coach and general manager feuding, Dean Spanos was forced to mediate conflict, and Dean Spanos failed to do so. The Chargers fired Marty Schottenheimer after a 14-win season. Marty never coached in the NFL again, and is still the winningest coach to never win a Super Bowl. He lost his years-long battle to Alzheimer's on February 8th. He was 77. We tried to get in touch with Marlon McCree, but he's a ghost. The last record we can find of him is in Duval County Jail in Florida where he was released in December 2019 after serving seven months for failing to appear in court for other charges. Troy Brown, the receiver who forced McCree's fumble, is now a coach for the Patriots, but declined to comment. And the man who recovered the fumble, Rache Caldwell, he was tragically shot and killed in Tampa, Florida this past year. He was 41. As for the Chargers, they had three more playoff appearances the next three seasons and lost them all including another against the Patriots and another against the Jets. The six-year stretch from 2004 to 2009 saw the Chargers go 67-29. They only missed the playoffs once. It's a more dominant era than even the Air Coriel teams. But their fate was all the same. The Chargers are not cursed. There's no Bambino or Billy Goat or even Madden cover in their history. Their greatest crime is simply existing at the same time as the New England Patriots. The truth is simple and gutting. They were their own worst enemy. Losing in back-to-back years against the Patriots? Losing the exact same way five years apart against the Jets? Even the team's off-field leader, Mark Fabiani, one of the most talented political messengers this country has ever produced, was somehow completely thwarted by one-term city attorney Mike Aguirre? No. The Chargers couldn't get past themselves. Earlier in this episode, we talked about the effect that a championship run can have on teams getting a new stadium. Chances are, 
if even one of these incredibly talented teams had even played in a Super Bowl, the Chargers would still be in San Diego. But don't take it from me. Take it from Ben Lieber, who played in that very first Chargers-Jets playoff game back in 2004. I think so. I think it would have been a much easier sell to the to the uh, city commissioner and, and all the people on the board, you know, when when they're when they are happy about their team and they're passionate um the the group of people and the fans that maybe don't show up for the games they they can be awfully loud in the streets so yeah i think a super bowl would have kept them in town remember what jim steak said when he took the job as the Chargers coo i always said that there were two things i wanted to achieve in my career both of which i never did was one to get a ring and the other one was to turn around and build a stadium Steak would leave the Chargers in 2010, right as the team ended its era of near excellence. He did not get his coveted Super Bowl ring. But a few years later, he would have another chance at building a stadium. I, Kevin L. Faulkner. I, Kevin L. Faulkner. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. Republican Kevin Faulkner was comfortably elected mayor in a 2014 special election to replace disgraced Democrat Bob Filner. Working in a divided government, it was going to be a bumpy road ahead. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Without any, any, any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And we believe you. <laughs> Faulkner was inheriting a city still struggling with its finances, one of the nation's worst homelessness crises, and a decaying five decades old stadium with a very unhappy tenant. The doomsday clock on a new stadium that the NFL and the Chargers had begun right before Super Bowl 37? It was about to strike midnight. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. In order to avert mutually assured destruction, Dean Spanos and Kevin Faulkner would have to work together. Or would they? All that on the next episode of Bolted. I'm telling you this right now is that they're gone. You got like a 1% chance to get them back in. You have elected people do what's expected of them to do, and that's to make bold decisions. Mayor Faulkner played it in a way that made him look the best from both sides. It was like a gut punch. Aside from the death threats? Dean Spanos and other members of the Los Angeles Chargers organization declined our request for an interview. Bolted was written and edited by me. Rafi Cantor. Our producer is Ben Stein. We're mixed by Jordan Cantor, who also wrote and performed our original music. Special thanks to Alex Wu, Ron Cantor, and Nate and Lisa Stein. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.